You're listening to The Sill Podcast with Peter Noche and Harry Posner. Rewinding to March of 2019, we re-release a slightly revised podcast of an episode you might have missed. TSP 86, The Undefinable Spirit. The Bassoon Takes a Bow, with Nadina Mackey. Welcome, folks, to another edition of the Sill Podcast. You're just listening to the beautiful tones of solo bassoonist Nadina Mackie off the top of the program. And we have her here as a special guest on The Undefinable Spirit. And you can chime in here, Peter. Nadina Mackie, solo bassoonist, is the most widely recorded Canadian bassoonist in history, with 17 new works for solo bassoon and orchestra written for her in the last decade. Recent solo recordings released to great reviews include Vivaldi Concerti Volume 1 with Nicholas McKagan and the Juno shortlisted Canadian Concerto Project with Guy Few and Group of 27 Chamber Orchestra. She's a true communicator, confidently venturing into new works, venues and collaborations, championing and joining forces with emerging and established composers, performers and thinkers, sharing her joy and continual sense of discovery with audiences, and not to mention her fantastic musical ability. Well, it's phenomenal, and she brings all of that technical and musical ability into new areas. She has performed concerti without orchestra in hospital lobbies at summer folk festivals, and uh, her performances and ideas often reach far beyond traditional concert settings for bassoon. Not only that, but she's performed with folk legend Valdi and other virtuoso musicians and orchestras. She's toured extensively across Canada, the U.S., to Europe and Japan, And also, Nadina is a wonderful visual artist, and my wife and I have three of her fantastic paintings. Nadina has shown regularly in the past 20 years, selling to private collectors, designing album covers, and creating original displays for Toronto storefronts. Her most recent big art project was to complete the remaining 13 paintings in a series of 24 for the stage play of Darwood's Wild Bassoon, Mm -hmm. co-created with Fraser Jackson. Incredible, incredible. Really? So good morning, Nadina. Good morning. Good morning, Harry and Peter. Thank you. I want to run away and hide, but yeah, thanks for saying all of my things. No, stay, stay. Stay, stay, please. So, Nadina, how do you manage to organize your life, given all these things you're involved in? I think it's a degree of ignorance about what's actually required with each (laughs) task. So I stumble forward and learn to couch my excuses in terms that are not too annoying to the people who need things from me, uh, especially paperwork. So, yeah, it's mostly stumbling down the highway of life with no preset plan about what was required of me, rather kind of naively following what I think must be done. Mm -hmm. That's not a good answer, but it's the truth. You were born in BC, right? Yes, northern BC, and I had really remarkable parents who, it's only as now that they've passed that I, <laughs> I'm reviewing the, the history and realizing how lucky I was. But as a child, it just seemed like they would take us into environments that were full of wonder, and they 
looked after us. So I think maybe that can give you a sense that anything's possible if you're resourceful and willing to work. Mm-hmm. It's not true, but it, that's what you start feeling when you're around people like that. So how did a BC-born country girl whose father was an internationally recognized cabin builder and designer turn into a successful, blue-haired, one-of-a-kind, gothy bassoonist? <laughs> <laughs> ah, well, thank you for that. all those adjectives. I like that. Again, it's I think it's like anyone's life. It's a series of twists and turns, and I think... I mean, one could analyze it. The bassoon does look like a log, and my father was a great builder. Mm. Um, (laughs) And he lived in the forest. I don't know. Maybe that's it. Uh, But it's just the voice of the instrument seems so complex, and just in the effort to learn how to play it, it sort of evokes possibility. I think it's like any young person who has an inclination towards an art form, when you hear it manifested, you not only hear what, is presented, but it's the echo of what's possible. And I think that's the lure that keeps us going. Mm. Um, I think adversity can help. My parents loved and supported me, but they were initially absolutely baffled as to why I wanted bassoon lessons. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, they worked so hard. We lived 30 miles from any town. My father would drive us to and from school each day, and then he would proceed with his own teaching and logging and all that. It just involved enormous effort. So when I said I want to fly to Vancouver, which was a distance of 500 miles, and there was one flight a day from Prince George to Vancouver. It was an expense and a time commitment and the unknown that initially my father objected to. Oh, That changed. I'd fly down and take a lesson with this miserable old teacher who was there, and then I'd sleep in the airport because the next flight was the next morning, and I'd fly back. And the curious thing about that fact is that Decades later, I was touring BC in, I think, 2012, and I told that story, and the pilot was in the audience. He said that was his run. So things do connect in the end. But I just felt that I needed a teacher who knew about the instrument, and the only way to get it was to go pretty far. So what were the biggest challenges for you in mastering the bassoon? That's a great question. I mean, it always seems hard. That doesn't seem to go away. And mastering the instrument also seems elusive. I mean, that's why it's an intriguing instrument, because it's got dimensions that are unexplored and possibilities that are unmanifested. And then we have to make reads. I guess the first thing any bassoon student has to learn is how to navigate the instrument. It has a huge range. Mm -hmm. So I think you need a good teacher or to be around other good players to even realize what the range of it is. And then you have to make reads for it. And that involves buying tools. Even buying the instrument is desperately expensive. Mm-hmm. Even poor quality student instruments are far more expensive. Just due to the market share, there aren't as many bassoon players and the complexity of making it. It's not a particularly logical instrument. So we're talking thirty, forty thousand dollars or more? For a student instrument, yeah. Yeah. And wow. then for a professional instrument will be twice that much. Really? But yeah. starting at forty yeah. And then there are of course exceptions like some extraordinary players play on cheaper instruments. The quality of the player matters a lot. But yeah, at one point I did own two bassoons and I was able to sell one and buy a sports car. So that was, <laughs> that, was a, that was a long time ago. <laughs> Have bassoon, will travel. Wow. Um, it'd be fun maybe to interview Canada's only bassoon maker who makes world-class instruments. Oh. His name is Benson Bell. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he lives near Peterborough. Stony Lake, and he's a great bassoonist as well. So mm-hmm. that's a truly remarkable person. Mm-hmm. 
there must have been mentors along the way who helped you out, taught you some things. And who do you think was your most important mentor and what it was that they most impressed upon you? Oh, what a great question. Some people are retroactive mentors. For example, my father, who in the beginning held me off my feet and asked me why I was trying to escape reality, who in the end began producing tools for me. Any tool that I needed, he would produce, and I've got those to this day. And then in terms of the actual instrument, each one of them I had, even though I disrespectfully referred to my first teacher as a grumpy old guy, sometimes it helps to have somebody who doesn't believe in you because, mm-hmm. yeah, you push against it, And which I did. I won't name him because he... <laughs> It, that's all. He, he was just bitter. And um, then after that, I had a series of absolutely extraordinary teachers. And and I, I really put them all together because mm. I learned really quickly in a short period. And I needed each one of these people to launch immediately with me. I didn't know that at the time, mm-hmm. but I know it in retrospect from teaching so long myself. Um, each of these teachers just took a look and said, okay, giddy up, let's go. And the first one was Christopher Millard. He's mm-hmm. not much older than I am. He's now the principal bassoonist of the National Arts Center Orchestra, but at the time he was starting with the Vancouver Symphony right when I was starting university. So I was at university when I was 16, and he was starting with the Vancouver Symphony when he was 20. So we were both kids. To me, he seemed like a god, and I was his only two student. I had really long lessons, and we covered the basics. And once you have the basics, you... I have a really strong foundation. So he was extraordinary. And then I needed summer school. And I was such a young player that I didn't know how to audition for summer school. So that first teacher reached out to another bassoonist in Ottawa, who was the principal player in the orchestra at the time. And that person, his name was Gerald Corey, took me on and taught me for free all summer. So I went out there and rented a room. And in exchange for babysitting his kids, I would get four-hour lessons maybe four lessons a week. And these are life-changing. It's the old-school mentorship, right? Mm, and yeah. he would sneak me into orchestra concerts. that they, were, they would do opera in the summer. And a lot of these players, if you have tremendously keen interest, they are a bottomless fountain. I don't know how they did it with their busy lives. And then from there, I went to the National Youth Orchestra, and Sidney Rosenberg was the bassoon teacher. He was associate principal in the Montreal Symphony. And again, just nonstop giving. And I think I was exhausting student for these people. I had a lot to learn and I was rough and they spent the time and gave me the clues I needed. And then after two years studying in Vancouver, I went to the Curtis Institute in Philadelphia and I got to study with Bernard Garfield and he's still alive. He's in his nineties. And also Saul Schoenbach, who was the principal bassoonist of the Philadelphia, they were both principal bassoonists of the Philadelphia Orchestra. And all these teachers stayed in touch with me Two of them have passed on, and I can't really separate them out because they've all helped. Like when I got my first job, I could call them and say, you know, how do I finger the G in Bolero because it's driving me crazy, and they would tell me what they did. It was a time period when, I think it might have been a blessedly short one, when there was a sense of equality between the ages and the sexes. I did not feel patronized at any point, yet I felt the absolute confidence to reach out to them. So I lumped them all together. In conjunction with what you're talking about, which is really kind of expressing your appreciation for your fellow musicians and your mentors, but they've obviously also influenced the way you work. You have a very kind of collaborative style. 
That seems to be a very important part of your creative lifestyle. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, thank you for saying that. In some circles, it's regarded with suspicion. I don't really want to give examples of that, but in others, it's immediately welcomed. Like uh, classical music, especially in Canada, it's pretty thin pickings, and so people tend to hang on to their territory and elbows up. But to me, it just seems ridiculous. There's so little work, so few opportunities, and yet Canadian talent is so extraordinary that unless we highlight each other, people are going to forget it or not know. So um, Mm. it's selfish. I want to be included in the strengthening of awareness, but I've always believed that if there's a more general awareness of my unusual instrument, it can only help our cause. And then with the bassoon, you actually need bassoons in an orchestra. So if you don't have great players, you're never going to have great orchestras. Mm Because it's a quiet instrument, but it can stink up an orchestra in a second. Mm-hmm. It's hard to describe, but you will never have a great orchestra with poor bassoon players. You won't. But you can mm-hmm. often have great bassoon players in a poor orchestra. They can't fix an orchestra, but they can make the orchestra sound fantastic if everybody else is good. Mm-hmm. It's the quietest instrument, and it's an interior voice. But I like playing it as a solo instrument because it has a huge range. So as to collaborating... I think it's essential. And if colleagues don't support one another, then there's just the simple pragmatic reality that work isn't going to happen. But because of the expense of the instrument, some kids from lower income backgrounds can't even consider going on. Sometimes they can get the instruments in school, but they can't buy one. So that's part of the reason why I established a charitable group, the Council of Canadian Bassoonists. I didn't realize it at the time, but I think one of the prerequisites to establishing a charitable group is to have money, access to money. And that I really haven't had, but people have donated instruments, and I helped a few kids that way. But that's actually prohibitive because the bassoon's so expensive to maintain. But we sort of clutch at various aspects of what we can do to help. And Mm. I'm slowly gathering my colleagues from across the country to continue the work of this charitable group. But at another level, also commissioning new works from Canadian composers for the bassoon. That's, again, selfish, because I like to play new music, but I also like to be part of the living culture. So Mm, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah, it's not really altruistic as so much as it is selfish. I want Mm. things to be vibrant. And Mm -hmm. teaching is an amazing opportunity, and... It takes real discipline to be a successful teacher while maintaining a high performance level. Box, box. So, what's your story? How did you two start this up? Because I've got a story about that. You, oh, what's that? Well, I was flying to Banff, and there was a layover that WestJet stopped in Calgary, and I was half asleep, and. We were just waiting for people to board, and then we'd leave, and I was asleep, and I heard this loud, loud noise, and I kind of opened one eye, and there's this guy walking down the aisle, spiky blonde hair and leather and trumpet, and loud, loud laughing, and there's a beautiful woman behind him laughing. (laughs) And so I just stared at him, stared and stared. He sat right diagonally across from me. He had really great glasses, and... I like crooked grin, and finally he kind of smiled cautiously at me, and you sat down and went to sleep. I'm yeah. very good at sleeping on planes. <laughs> I'm well so known for I, it. I went home and I, I described him to Fraser, 
my husband at the time, and I said, this really cool trumpet player, and Fraser said, oh, it's Guy Few. He's the only <laughs> cool trumpet player in Canada. He says, you don't know who he is? I said, no, I've never heard of him. But he was extremely well-known, and then we ended up being invited to play. I was invited as a sub in a group that Guy was playing in in Montreal, and after the first rehearsal at the break, I called Mathieu, and I said, can you change that solo concerto to a double? He said, for what? And I said, trumpet and bassoon. There's a moment of silence. He said, yeah, I can do that. recently sold your house, your beautiful church <laughs> house. Right, recently. I mean, I've sold lots of houses to keep surviving, but yeah. most recently I sold my concert hall, yeah. And then you moved into your father's cabin. The uh, word cabin doesn't really fit here. Oh, okay. He's a builder. Okay. And I'm going to diverge for a second. Anybody who's familiar with my father's work will be maybe laughing, but uh, the word cabin that my father wanted to exercise from the English language because uh-huh. it implies a single room substandard structure. Right. And mm-hmm. these are custom built houses that are fitted to the highest level with uh-huh. an understanding of how wood moves. It's a particularly Canadian tradition of the round log, scribe log buildings. And the whole premise was that one could have the dignity of the skill learning to build your own house and maintaining it free of a mortgage, I mean, ideally, but that doesn't always happen. Mm-hmm. So the word cabin is something we don't use. It'd be helpful if I could think of a similar word, but the word house implies a dignified structure. The word cabin implies a temporary structure. Master builder. Master builder. Yeah, even that is a term. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> he is an extraordinary builder and of houses and larger structures across Canada and throughout the world in Japan and beyond. What would you say that you learned from your father that you still carry with you today? I know he passed away not long ago. What do you carry with you of him? A gumption, I would say, uh, (laughs) because his skills were particular. They were highly mathematical and physical with the power tools. I was always afraid of loud noises. It was painful to me. So I felt that my father was an infinite resource when it came to the idea of needing to build something. It didn't occur to me that he would ever die. And uh, mm. But what I carried from him, and we've gotten away from your earlier question about why I've chosen this house over the other one. We'll return to that. But from him, I got the idea that you break things down into steps and then you accomplish them. And if, if you lack the skill, then you engage someone else to work with you. And he figured out all kinds of things. Like my parents initially self-published their books. It was my mother who initiated that and who was the editor and such a good writer. And she also took care of all the things like copyright and bookkeeping and the stuff that lies behind all the artistic endeavors. And then from there, if we needed running water in the middle of the forest, my dad would calculate the degree of pressure required to make an above-ground water line in the summer. And then the, the system in the winter was we would take the truck down to the lake and mm-hmm. load up with water. <laughs> yep. And I learned that there's always a way to do things. And he, he wrote the books and then he went on to create slides of method. And then they established a school 
And then he figured out how to make videos and blue screen and green screen and all that stuff. And yeah. he managed, with the help of a neighbor and out in the middle of the woods, to transfer all his big videos to to digitize them. And what I saw in both my parents was if you needed to do something, you would analyze it and see what you were missing and see if you could fill it in. Just another problem and, to be solved. Yeah, exactly, Peter. And something specific for me when I spoke to you a couple of days ago, there's always, as they say, a woman behind the man. Mm -hmm. Your mother doesn't get yeah. the notoriety, at least not publicly, that your father does, correct? Yeah. Tell me a little bit about your mother. Tell me your feelings about her, what she represented behind you. your dad's success, I'm assuming. She was the rock, and she was also the starter engine. She was not always a comfortable dynamic, but they got things done. Her name was Mary Mackey, and in terms of my life, she was the one that made sure that when we were in the far north of British Columbia that every, was it Saturday? Saturday night at the opera? The Metropolitan Opera would broadcast, and and when I was a little kid, I didn't love opera, but she insisted on listening to it, so the generator got turned on and she would listen. And mm. a couple decades later, when I was in my early 30s, I became the principal bassoonist of the Canadian Opera Company, and she's the one that walked us down to the main road and we drove to Smithers and then heard the Canadian Opera Company on tour when I was four. And then I do remember coming home and then they'd have to carry us up because it was, it was springtime and the road was impassable and, and we lived in the hills, just at the foothills of the mountain. But she made the effort and she felt that it was valuable, that art was valuable, that language was valuable mm. and all of that. But she was extremely organized. So at one point to make money, my father was teaching night courses on building and he made beautiful drawings, instructional drawings, and the students would take them to photocopy, which he had no problem with. But my mother, when she realized what was happening, she said, this stops today and we publish a book. And they did it. And they initially got the pages printed and they would collate them. They would set them out on our beds and then they'd walk around the house and they would surlock them. And then they got taken over by other publishers and that's Hmm. Ghost books are still being published by Firefly in Canada. Um, but she had to stay on top of it because at one point they got offered to be represented by Scribner's in the States. And of course, we all think that that's going to help us. But it wasn't a great arrangement in terms of royalties. So right. I was also at her side in New York City when she had to go and tell them to take a hike. She's clutching her purse and wearing her little white suit. And <laughs> I was on tour with the Montreal Symphony and we were playing Carnegie that night. So she flew down and said, come with me. Mm -hmm. It took planning and organization, and she figured out how to do stuff, and she was not a go-quietly-into-the-night kind of long-suffering woman. She was pissed off most of the time at the amount of work she had to do, and and my father, it's very empowering to have someone work at that level, and mm -hmm. he was not really aware of how much she was doing. And later in life, he built a sailboat and was going around the world, and she got him to come back when he got as far as Hawaii because she couldn't bear the thought of the high seas dangers he was facing. Mm -hmm. He came back, and then they were divorced within four months, and they were both 71. And wow. at that hmm. point, she handed all the business to him, and he came out east and began building here. But that was his biggest comment that he said. He did not realize how much infrastructure went into maintaining a business in a house. Mm -hmm. I mean, he honestly said that. And then just to round that story off in a kind of quick way she was dying of breast cancer and at that point he asked her to come home so they spent her last four months together 
nice. reaching at each other. And it was good, as good as it could be. A very dynamic life. And there's much more to say about her, but I am grateful that you <laughs> mention her. And there's a dynamism there. She did not really want the spotlight on her, but she could step into the spotlight quite clearly. And her writing lives well, on. And I think that's how I'll have to reveal her at some point. All I can say is what a gift to have not one, but two parents who gave you so much. Yeah, they did. And it does give a bizarre sense of the ability to manage things that could be called delusional if examined. But yeah, (laughs) they certainly had the vitality. You're really inside a very enriched environment. You were immersed by the sounds of it in a family mm-hmm. where there was great creativity and energy and drive, etc., etc., etc. And that's not a comfortable thing either. No. Well, here's the question that follows on that. You've played at Carnegie Hall. You've just said that. You've played at many halls with wonderful orchestras. And my mm-hmm. question is this. For those of us who are not musicians, can you describe mm-hmm. what it's like what you're feeling, what you're thinking, what you're hearing when you're in the middle of an incredible piece of music inside an amazing orchestra in a grand hall like Carnegie. What's the experience for you like? Well, I guess that each concert would be different. And I think that all musicians are addicted to what they do. So it's an internal world that we have going into it. If you know the work and you're performing it on tour, you're in a different hall every night or every other night. So you have the reality that's in your mind and body, and then you have the experience of seeing how it resonates differently in different acoustics. So I think it's why we want to keep doing it. And uh, it's also, you never know exactly what's going to happen. So there's Mm -hmm. that kind of awareness of trying to hit target at all times while staying in motion. And it's physically intoxicating, and it's something that can be honed and refined for a long career. Earlier, I started to say that it's an athletic endeavor that actually can endure for a long period of time. Mm -hmm. And so I think to think about your question from multiple perspectives, when you're young, you're kind of nervous and excited about being in a famous hall. When you're older, it might be equally shallow. You might be thinking about the reviewers or something. But at some point, if you get to return a number of times the experience becomes more nuanced and you get to anticipate that hall with an eagerness and also the energy of the audience and that changes how you perform. So Mm. I think in the midst of the playing, if the acoustic is glorious, it's pure pleasure and I think it's constant, the sense that you don't want to damage that experience. Mm -hmm. And while you're talking about music, so let's go beyond Mm -hmm. the music because you're also an accomplished painter. And I'm curious to know, how does your painting style or the subjects relate to the way you approach music? Well, it's a good question. And when I say good question, I mean it's one I haven't considered. Yeah, I do know that I enjoyed it. And at one period when I had a big enough studio that I could have both. Hmm. I couldn't do that in my 4,000 square foot church because of the lighting and the flooring. So... Whenever I can put them together, I find that without me being conscious of the pathway that playing actually allows me to see better than if I'm just staring straight at the paintings. Uh, in broad general terms, I do two kinds of painting, either really illustrative where it's 
not exactly realistic, but semi-realistic. Mm. I mean, my apparently lifelong project of doing this, illustrating this dragon story, I shouldn't have chosen to do it in life-size canvases. <laughs> but anywho, <laughs> sometimes I'll do something dumb like put his thumb on backwards. Mm. I don't do it anymore, but in the beginning I would do that. And I would only see it when I was playing, like little errors like that. And then to answer your question more directly, I think the most direct parallel between the two art forms is composition. What goes next to what, in Mm -hmm. what degree of intensity, foreground, background, Mm -hmm. and... um, Like color and notes are the same tool. Yeah, transparency, opacity, uh, saturation, Mm -hmm. frailness, strength. It's about what goes next to what. Mm-hmm. And then color is a huge factor. Um, type of color that I'm using really matters. And then I guess the other parallel would be the quality of light is parallel to the quality of the acoustic. And mm. light is <laughs> affected by everything. It's affected by angle, um, ordinal direction. It's also affected by the color of the walls you're in. So I most enjoy painting outside. And that's something I can do up north in the summer because... I have 20 acres of relatively uninhabited space, so mm-hmm. I don't have curious children or dogs bothering me when I'm painting outside, and that's easy. But anyway, it's just mm-hmm. the same way that any shape of concert hall and what it's occupied by in terms of paint or stone or all those things will affect the acoustics. So within that, you either use the restriction or you're aware of the restriction, or you seek out the optimal circumstances, but mm-hmm. you know, you'll never paint if you do that, and you'll never play if you do that. So mm-hmm. it's learning what relates to what. When you're in the middle of playing, or at the end even, of playing a robust piece of music, and you put, mm-hmm. and I've witnessed you, play numerous times and you put everything into it. your entire body your entire soul goes into the playing are you drained at the end of a performance like that or how do you feel yeah good question um if you're playing one concerto on a program and you're in shape then you're energized by it if you're playing fourth bassoon on a 10-week tour mm. i guess i've never done a 10-week tour but even a three-week tour Mm. and you're playing music you hate, you'll be drained. If Mm. you're playing a new concerto that's really hard and you've had one rehearsal, you might be physically tired but mentally energized. Mm -hmm. And So it's a good question, but there's no across the board. I tend to be animated. I think that's a better word. Mm. So even if my body's weary, I'm molecularly animated from playing the concertos. And I did a photo shoot once, concerto concert with a premiering a new concerto and playing a favorite old one. One night, and then early the next morning, I had to be in the Toronto International Airport for a photo shoot. And mm-hmm. that's the best photo shoot I've ever had because I just look happy, profoundly happy. And it's because I got to, it's like a horse who wants to run, you get to do it. Yeah, and mm-hmm. you probably know that they've done studies where playing a musical instrument is actually the equivalent of a physical workout in terms of the benefit of the body. Yeah, and then as you get more efficient, it, it's less taxing and then... That's why there are lots of fat musicians, <laughs> but even though they're really good players. So I also think that the strength is real and, and it also needs to be exercised. You need to do it and to enhance that expertise and resilience. Mm-hmm. You have to keep doing it. So what's coming up for you in the next six, eight months, year? Fewer actual concerts than usual. 
Peter, you checked in early this morning just to make sure the lines were okay and everything. And mm. I was actually on the line with a conductor from the State University of New York, and they've commissioned me to perform, uh, record a new work with them in April. We're looking forward to that. The composer that they had chosen is now ill, so it's, again, we don't quite know what's going to happen, but that's on the books one way or another. And then I think I'm playing a Vivaldi concerto with the Durham Chamber Orchestra at the end of May. I think it's May 26th, so that'll be fun. That's not far from Toronto. Mm -hmm. And after that, I'll be heading to North Carolina to play at a bassoon camp that's been going for 40 years. And Mm. it's in the hills of North Carolina, near Winston-Salem, and I'm sure I'll be fine. And they've invited guest artists, the most well-known bassoonists in the world for the last 40 years. And I think I'll be the fifth woman invited. They've had over 80 bassoon people Mm. leading the camp. and. um, Yeah, so that'll be interesting, and I hope to be releasing my new book. I've written a book about my basic technical, for lack of a better word, workouts. They're mostly concepts. It's called Solitary Refinement, and the subtitle is Concepts for the Committed Bassoonist. Great title. Thank you. I've avoided the word bassoonatic in the title, but it'll appear in the introduction somewhere. (laughs) (laughs) The idea is that patterns lead to... It builds a fabric of understanding. From there, you can depart. And, and it certainly, for the bassoon, builds a fabric of understanding how the sound works on the instrument and then how we make our reads. So I think it's essential. And I think, interestingly, there are many, many, many technique books, pedagogical manuals written for mm-hmm. the bassoon, and not one single one that I know of yet, but it may exist. Certainly not in common currency by a woman. Right. Again, that's never been my first priority, but it makes you scratch your head and wonder why. Mm-hmm. And I also make my bassoon reads completely freehand, which is considered borderline insane. And I need to, <laughs> I've made almost a thousand and all my most recent big recordings and all my performances are done with these freehand reads. So I, I need to do a video about it just to show people how easy it is. So much of our craft is considered out of reach. I would like to show players that this is a skill that any skilled bassoonist can use or develop if they want. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it tends to be in classical music pedagogy, there tends to be dogma. There's either one system or another. And I, I truly believe there are several. And this, anyway, I need to do a little video because that's current and it's the quickest way to kind of show people what you're talking about. And then I'm booking a, a series of concerts with a traveling string group. And it's called Ophelia Speaks, and it's uh, a reimagining of Hamlet, like changing it from a blood-soaked Danish revenge psychodrama to (laughs) just imagining Ophelia saying, wait a minute, I'm going to steal a credit card and get out of here. I know know, she she would be dead within seconds because there were so many perils. So I was going to say, Nadina, all these things that you're talking about, this is all a lot of information about a lot of things that are going on. And really, we have the internet now, and you've got a wonderful website. In fact, you've got more than one website. I'd like you to take the opportunity right here to tell people what websites they should be looking at to get a lot of this information, i.e. your music and art and also your father's Um, houses. I'll say that again, and your father's houses and so on. Bless you. Thank you. And it's easy to go to my website. It's my name, MedinaMacken.com. But if you can't remember all that, just punch in bassoon blue hair. Uh (laughs) And I think you wanted to put in another one in there? 
Oh, thank you. Thanks for all of it. Uh, yeah. And then I'm working on my parents' history and that website is com. And again, if you Google log builder Canadian, it'll probably come up with my father's name. Uh-huh. But <laughs> all right. I wanted to give you a gift. On the, over Thank you. The, I'm going to give you a gift. And here's the gift I'm going to give you. I know you love Vivaldi. Yes. So I'm going to get my buddy here, Peter Noce, to compliment mm-hmm. you for playing Vivaldi and to compliment you on your bassoon playing in his dulcet <laughs> Italian tones. Ready, Peter? Do you see what, he's, do you see what he's pulling on me? Ready? Na, Nadina, tuoi concerti, una musica magnifica. Grazie. <laughs> <laughs> and with your permission, I'm going to use a phrase that you used earlier in the podcast, which was <laughs> echoes of what is possible. Mm-hmm. I love oh, the phrase. Me too. And uh, I'm going to use you. it. Thank you. I forgot and I said that. That's in a poem I somewhere. might write that down. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Harry. That's a, that's a great compliment. Right. We're going to close this off now. And uh, we just want to remind our listeners that anyone listening to this podcast, we'd love your feedback. Go to thesillpodcast.com. There's a button you can just click on and record your voice. You don't even have to text then or write anything. Give us your best bassoon solo. Give us your best anything bassoon you solo. Like. That's right. <laughs> that would be great. <laughs> I hope people do that. And we'll make sure we send it to Nadina as is. Thanks again, Nadina. Have a good one. Thank you guys so much. Been a pleasure. Yeah. Uh, a real pleasure. Likewise. Thanks for your great kindness. Both we'll, we'll of you. And we'll talk soon. And I'll see you soon. All right. Thank thanks, you. Thanks, Adina. Bye, Ciao. Ciao. Bye-bye. The Sill Podcast, Perspectives on Art and Technology, is a Connecting Dots Media production. Available at thesillpodcast.com. <laughs>